Welcome to the FOI Equip podcast, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Katolka. You know, the scriptures tell the story of God's chosen people and his plan to bring salvation to the whole world through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Come see why it matters that God would choose an ancient people to bring a timeless hope to a lost and broken world. Now, listen, I want to encourage you to go to foiequip.org to sign up to be on our mailing list. You're going to receive vital information on how you can join our free live online FOI Equip classes. Now get ready. Join our expert staff on the FOI Equip podcast as we teach the scriptures, unravel the colorful world of Jewish culture and customs, reveal God's prophetic plan, and so much more. Now enjoy this teaching from FOI Equip. All right. Welcome, everyone, tonight. We're going to be looking at patriarchs and presidents, as we've discussed here. Uh, We'll go ahead and begin and uh, see how far we can get into the message this evening of how America has blessed Israel. We have, uh, if this were an academic class, we would have four textbooks uh, for this class, either as text or collateral reading. And Chris is going to show those here. Uh, the main one that we would use would be uh, Elwood McQuaid. I don't know if you've seen this book. It is no dream. Uh, it was beautifully redone just about the time I began with Friends of Israel in 2019. Uh, and glossy paper filled with pictures and charts. And it's a wonderful summary of Israel prophecy and history, the whole story. You can see it uh, there on your screen. and. Uh, be quoting from that a little bit later. And uh, Elwood McQuaid is a wonderful leader for the Friends of Israel. He's before my time with the ministry, but I commend that book to you. And there are several others that I would encourage you to uh, uh, consider as well. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, The other side of the equation would be uh, Hitler's Cross by Erwin Lutzer. It's a real easy to read book if you're familiar with Erwin Lutzer and his preaching and teaching and writing how the cross was used to promote the Nazi agenda. Uh, Wonderful, uh, very important book. Uh, And I think the next book comes to us with a familiar face. There he is, Chris's new book, Israel Always. And I hope you uh, have paid attention to that book as it's come out in the last year. Uh, has some similarity to the McQuaid book, uh, gives you a real overview of God's work in history in the nation of Israel, and uh, very practical, very easy to read, and filled with great information as well. And then finally, I would commend to you Thomas Ice, The Case for Zionism, Why Christians Should Support Israel. So those would be our... our, uh, books here if, uh, as I said, we were studying this on a longer term, but I'd encourage you if you're interested in our topic to continue and uh, search the scriptures and also utilize these resources. I think you can get all of those through Friends of Israel. Chris, I'll kind of nod my head if you can keep up uh, to follow that uh, with the slides. You can go ahead And we all want God to bless America, don't we? I don't know how many of you remember after 9-11 that you could see signs everywhere. Um, Every ball game became an opportunity to say what? God bless America, America the beautiful. Well, God has blessed America. He has indeed blessed us richly. But what what are the reasons that he has blessed us? What are the reasons that he would continue to bless us? And what should we do in response to that? Go ahead, Chris. Uh, We're going to think about the biblical basis for blessing Israel. Go ahead to the next slide. And we see that that begins in Genesis 12 in the Abrahamic covenant that God gave to Abram. When he called him out of Ur the Chaldees, out of Babylon, to come to a promised land, he made a covenant which is foundational to all of God's work in all of the rest of history and all of the rest of Scripture. 
It really offers us a paradigm for everything that God would do from that point forward. That's why it's repeated throughout Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, not only in the Pentateuch, but in the historical books and the prophets of Israel in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. The Abrahamic covenant is absolutely fundamental to all of God's work in history. And what are the particular elements of the Abrahamic covenant? Chris, in verse 1, we see the Lord said to Abram that he was to go out from his country to a land, the land clause, the land clause that God promised a land to Abram that he would give to him. And he expands on that promise, on that part of the covenant, in the land covenant of Deuteronomy 30. And of course, we could take our whole evening tonight and more to uh, think about the important details of this covenant and all the ramifications of it. But the land clause is first. And go ahead, Chris, into verse 2. He uh, has also a seed clause or a national clause, a descendants clause, that he would make of Abram a great nation. And uh, we know that Abram at this point in Genesis 12 is 75 years old. His wife, Sarai, is 65 years old. They are both uh, at this point beyond the natural age for childbearing. And yet God says, I'll make of you a great nation when they have no children at all. And the descendants clause, the seed clause, is expanded in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, which is, an, is a divine commentary on that clause of the Abrahamic covenant. And then the third clause of the covenant is the blessing clause. I will make you a blessing. And that is found in... Uh, that is expanded upon in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, which is a continuation and enlargement of the blessing clause of the Abrahamic covenant. And then in verse three, there are what I call two footnotes to the covenant. God promises that he will bless those who bless the descendants of Abram, but he will curse the one who dishonors Abram. Notice it's not to curse those who curse, uh, as we often translate the verse, but there are two different words for curse. You simply must fail to bless the people of Israel to receive God's curse. And through Abram, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that's how you and I can have any hope. It's because this covenant provides a salvation, ultimately personified in Jesus Christ, we know the Messiah, and his, his grace is so overwhelming, it overflows and brings salvation and blessing to all the families, to all the nations of the earth. Go ahead. In Exodus chapter 4, at the burning bush, we have the uh, an illustration of how this would work out in history, of how God will curse those who fail to bless the people of Israel. And we have in Exodus chapter 4, when God calls Moses, he shares with him regarding the task before him and the burden that he is to bring before Pharaoh in leading the Exodus and leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he tells him in Exodus 4, 22 and 23, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now we know that this plays out in Exodus chapter 11, as God is preparing to send the 10th plague, which would be the, the basis of the Passover, uh, as it's instituted here in the book of Exodus, at the time that the people depart, the children of Israel depart from the land of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 11, 
Moses delivers this burden to Pharaoh and gives him this message. And uh, he tells him, beginning in verse 4, we'll pick it up, where he says, Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Amazing, isn't it? God's concern for animals and the important place that they hold in the mind of God as we see them here at the institution of the Passover, as we see them at the birth of the Savior, at the passion of Christ. Just an interesting side note that we won't explore tonight. But even the firstborn of the animals would be put to death as a supernatural judgment by God on the land of Egypt. Why? Why the firstborn of each of these? As someone said, why not the second cousin twice removed? Why the firstborn? Well, it's because as we've seen in Exodus chapter 4, Israel is God's son, God's firstborn. And you touch God's son, his firstborn, and he will be coming for you and your firstborn. Chris, we have the next slide, which takes us to Deuteronomy, which shows why God chose. In fact, someone just recently asked me the question, why did God choose the people of Israel? Uh, why did he do this? Why did he give them such privileges and responsibilities and blessings? Well, Deuteronomy 7, we won't take the time to read this whole passage. I'll ask you to search the scriptures and consider what I say and look up some of these references. But it, God makes it clear here in this passage that it's not because of anything inherent in the Jewish people. It's not because they were more gracious. It's not because they were more deserving. It's not because they were more faithful. Uh, it's not because they were more gifted and talented. It's because God determined to set his love upon them to, to make this unconditional covenant with Abraham that we've seen is the basis for all of God's work. It would be the basis of all of God's directing of all of history until the coming kingdom of Christ our Lord. And so, Chris, we go to the book of Zechariah and see what God says there about touching his firstborn, touching his son. He says, he who touches Israel actually touches the apple of God's eye. It's like the pupil of your eye. Do you want to stick your finger or your thumb in the eye of God? Well, you can do it. Just touch his son, his firstborn, the people of Israel, then stand back and wait for the reaction. You know, Adolf Hitler would find this out. I mentioned uh, Lutzer's book, Hitler's Cross, and we'll be thinking about these issues, obviously, in this class. Um, who would have thought in November of 1938, when on the 9th and 10th, Hitler unleashed the Holocaust through Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, 30,000 Jewish men taken off into concentration camps like uh, Buchenwald, which we saw uh, when we were on our Reformation tour in 2017, Lynette and I, we drove past and saw it right outside the city of Weimar, uh, Dachau, and uh, just tremendous fury unleashed and the Jewish people suffering so terribly. And it was a month later, of course, that the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry was unleashed in the city of Philadelphia. But who could have dreamed that in a mere seven years, Hitler would be dead, his army would be destroyed, his nation would be in tatters, his dream of a thousand-year Reich completely dissolved. And the Jewish people 
would soon be coming from countries around the world where they were neither annihilated nor assimilated, but they'd preserve their, their language, culture, religion, heritage. And in May of 1948, as so many of them by then had returned to the what would become the modern state of Israel, life on the streets of Jerusalem begins again. You see, touch the people of Israel and there will be an incredible reaction from heaven as you've actually been successful in, in scratching the eye of God. So we go on from there to consider uh, what a great patriot, now with the Lord, Dr. Tim LaHaye, a World War II veteran, said about these things. And he said, notice, I am convinced that the blessings of God on America, in spite of all the things we have done wrong, and I think probably all of us would testify we've got plenty of those, don't we? But he said it's because we have been good to the Jew. He said, I am so proud of America and to be an American for a number of reasons. Go ahead. But one, he said, is we have an unprecedented history of being good to the Jew. God's unconditional promise is the promise that we are seeing fulfilled in America today. His unconditional promise to Abraham that he will bless those who bless the people of Israel. He said, I just hope and pray that America, go ahead, will never change this national policy toward Israel. Now, the next slide says something that may shock you. And you can see if you agree or disagree. But here's what my, friends, doc, my friend Dr. Andy Woods said. He said, Israel does not need America. It is America that needs Israel. Because of what God said, our national survival and existence largely depends on this issue. Now, because of what God said in the Abrahamic covenant, that he will bless those who bless Israel, he will curse those actually uh, who simply fail to bless Israel. Again, two different Hebrew words for curse. Um, you know, God has a plan for Israel. He is not finished with Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. America has not replaced Israel. One thing we could be tempted, and certainly some have uh, gone this route, we could be we could be tempted as we see the incredible blessings of God on America and how America has interacted with Israel over 400 years. We could actually become proud and haughty and lifted up and uh, like Paul warns against in Romans 11. And we could begin to think that America must be the kingdom. America has received such blessings. It's become the, uh, the center of the Christian world, the sending nation of the world from world missions. We must be the kingdom. And that, of course, would be to be uh, make an incredible blunder biblically, because we're not the kingdom. God still has a future for Israel. And God will fulfill every promise he's ever made to his chosen nation, every prophecy ever given. And as he's been with them in their biblical past, so he's with them today in the strategic present and will be with them in the prophetic future. Israel doesn't need America to survive. Israel is going to be just fine in the plan of God. It's America that needs Israel. And so we're going to look then, I think in the next slide, uh, is going to take us to a contemporary example. Let me preface this by saying this is not an endorsement or an opposition. It's not a political statement. We're, we're talking about uh, just factual information, uh, even down to the present day. And for a contemporary example of that, we're going to think about uh, President Trump, our former president, who's also a candidate for president again. And here's what he said. I make this promise to you. My administration will always stand with Israel. And how did he demonstrate his stand with Israel? Uh, he did several things that are, uh, of course, well known. The embassy moved to Jerusalem. The U.S. embassy moved to Jerusalem in May of uh, 2018 for the 
70th anniversary of the modern state of Israel. He also recognized that Israel should have control of the Golan Heights, uh, which is uh, reviewed by the rest of the world as being part of Syria. Someone is putting in the comments the Abraham Accords, yes. And of course, there's lots that could be said about the Abraham Accords that we won't take time to go into tonight. You can look back and see many um, editorials from Chris and uh, from Dr. Jim Showers, our president, and others on our FOI website uh, collected from various places as they were written contemporaneously with those things. Um, I'd like to read, and again, this is this is from an, a man who's now a candidate as well, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence. I'd like to read a couple of passages from his uh, biography that's come out, So Help Me God, which is, again, not endorsing him as a candidate. I'm just, this is a very interesting book if you uh, haven't looked at it. And on pages 273 through 275, he goes into an extended look here, um, actually through 277, about four, about five pages of uh, how he was given the task of going to Israel and speaking at the Knesset and sharing the official declaration that America would be moving the embassy to Jerusalem and recognizing Jerusalem as the capital. And so he talks about that. And let me just read uh, a little bit so we don't get behind for sake of time. Uh, and I'll, I'll encourage you to uh, read the book or read the section here at greater length. But he says in Congress, this is page 274. I gave pro-Israel addresses so often, Pence says, I was asked if there was a big Jewish community out in rural Indiana. I had Jewish constituents, yes, but I was expressing my support for Israel as an American believer, not simply because Israel is the lone democracy in the Middle East, but because its existence is proof that, God, that God's promises are true. Its creation and survival so soon after the Holocaust are miracles. And he goes on to say, I took to the podium in the historic Knesset chamber and said, quote, we stand with Israel because Israel's cause is our cause. We stand with Israel because we stand with right over wrong, good over evil, end quote. I explain that in the story of the Jewish people, we have always seen the story of America, a journey from persecution to freedom, a story that shows the power of faith and the promise of hope. I mentioned President Trump to applause, but also Presidents Washington and John Adams. Since our nation's founding, Americans have cherished the Jewish people. We were the first nation on earth to acknowledge the state of Israel and now we were the first to acknowledge Jerusalem as its capital. By doing so, we were simply acknowledging a historical fact, writing a seven decades long wrong. And I believed at the time that we were setting the stage for a real peace. And he goes on from there, and he talks about other events in uh, Israeli history and how all this came to be with the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem. So we have, in our, very, in our very recent past, we've seen some evidence of America's concern and seeking to be a blessing for Israel through our 45th president, Donald Trump. Go ahead, Chris, because we're going to back up now and look at the historical background. Why, how is it? that America has been a place where even to this day, amazingly, it's still very important oftentimes for our leaders. Now this, we pray with uh, Tim LaHaye's quote, this will never change. We, we are concerned that we may see evidence that it is changing, aren't we? But why is it that even today, people perhaps not even knowing why, but unwittingly, even our leaders, our candidates, our politicians feel the need to be very careful, if nothing else, or even to 
overtly show concern in seeking to bless the people of Israel. I believe it's been built into the foundation of our country going back more than 400 years. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, to Here's a quote from Dr. Thomas Ice, and I mentioned this book, The Case for Zionism. He says, within the English-speaking world, the most pro-Israel element has been American Christianity, starting with colonial America up to our present time. The reason appears to be the fact that America was, go ahead, uh, whoops, too far. Oh, I think we're missing uh, the rest of that quote, um, Chris, in these slides, so I'll fill it in here. I had made a few changes in the slides that, uh, just I'll say this for everyone's benefit real quickly. I'd made a couple of changes and corrections and we're not looking at the corrected uh, version. So we're missing a little bit of the quote, you know, let me fill that in and you can check me up on the case for Zionism. In fact, I have the book here, but uh, so he says that the reason uh, for this uh, is that the, first, he says, quote, America was founded, primarily founded, not just by Christians, but by Protestant Christians who were clearly philo-Semitic. That means lovers of Israel. Who were these people he's talking about? The Puritans. Now, this is something that is not widely known. Uh, most of the people today out there talking about the Puritans uh, come from the vantage point of uh, Reformed theology. Uh, many of them love the Puritans. But many of these people are not premillennial. Many of us who are premillennial, dispensational, uh, don't spend a lot of time talking about the Puritans and some other things that we're going to be looking at here, which I think that we should give more attention to because they're very important. And they're actually very helpful in uh, sharing some uh, historical background that that is favorable to the viewpoint that we're trying to establish here about premillennial dispensationalism. Go ahead, Chris, and you see a picture there that probably all of you will remember. Um, our Pilgrim Fathers, uh, they are embarking on the Mayflower there. I hope this doesn't make you too hungry for turkey before you have to leave us here tonight. But you see, uh, I believe that it's, uh, Elder Brewster, probably William Brewster, next on his left, William Bradford, governor, become Governor Bradford. They're opening a Bible there on the Mayflower. What Bible would that be? Well, we have another picture of the pilgrims here uh, that you're probably, you've probably seen at the first Thanksgiving. Um, what was the Bible they read from? Go ahead, Chris. The Bible of the pilgrims, you see pictures of it right here. It's the Geneva Bible, and I'll let Chris just go through these pictures kind of um, rather quickly here. Here's a 1583 New Testament, and it's open here, 1583. Uh, 1600, that's a very important uh, time in the history of the Geneva Bible, which we'll see here in a moment. Go ahead, Chris. Here, by that time, by a 1600, uh, you can see almost the beginnings of a modern study Bible. The Geneva Bible was the world's first study Bible. It was an English translation, the first complete English translation of the whole Bible taken from the original languages, because it's the first English Bible to fully translate the Old Testament from Hebrew and Aramaic. And it's also the world's first study Bible. It's done in Calvin's Geneva. Calvin had died in 1564, early on into the project. Go ahead, Chris. See a few more uh, pictures here of, of the Geneva Bible, uh, 1608. These all come from my friend Gene Albert, and uh, he has recently really relocated to Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, and opened the Tennessee Bible Museum. Not the big one in Washington, D.C. that you see advertised on the news channels, but the Tennessee Bible Museum. But he has 
incredible knowledge and resources in rare books and Bibles. Go ahead, Chris. Um, uh, there's a shelf full of some Geneva Bibles, and that takes us to this statement. Oh, here's a page. Let's back up one real briefly. This is Romans 11 from the 1599 Geneva Bible. Now keep that date on the sticky side of your mind, 1599. And then let me make this statement that we see in the next slide. The Geneva Bible is without doubt the most influential book in the history of the Western world of which you may have never heard. If we were to take a poll here tonight or in our churches uh, and we were to ask the question, what is the version of the Bible that built America? Undoubtedly, there is no question we would receive the answer probably nearly 100%. Now, we couldn't do this out on the uh, street, man on the street type thing, because people would say, huh, Bible, built America, what? But hopefully, at least in our churches, we'd get a response. But the response would be, as I said, probably nearly 100%. The King James Version of the Bible is the Bible that built America. And that is absolutely incorrect. The Bible that built America is the Geneva Bible. It's the Bible of the pilgrims and the Puritans. Let me say this, not every Puritan is a pilgrim, but every pilgrim is a Puritan. They were the same theologically. They, came, the, the, they both came over to America. Uh, we know probably the pilgrim story at Thanksgiving. They carried the Geneva Bible. They built their lives. They built this country on the Geneva Bible, as did the Puritans who came. And the Puritans, as uh, I think we missed another quote there in the slides, but from Thomas Ice saying, the Puritans were largely premillennial. Now, again, that's lost to history. And the people that talk about the uh, Puritans don't talk about premillennialism. And we who talk about premillennialism don't talk about the Puritans. And that doesn't help ourselves because we, we have a gap there in our knowledge. And again, it's one that we should be learning about. The Geneva Bible is the Bible that built America, the translation and the study notes. Now, I'm not demeaning the King James Version, especially as a translation. Most of the text of the King James Version translation, uh, let me restate that. Most of the text of the translation of the Geneva Bible was utilized in the King James Version. But the king wanted to get rid of the study notes, King James. That's another whole subject. But we'll go on here and we'll see some examples. And we'll do these quickly. Romans 11, 12 talks about the fall of the Jewish people in terms of their fact that they've re largely rejected the Messiah, their failure of faith, it's riches for the Gentiles. Notice what the Geneva Bible study notes said in, in the version of 1599 on Romans 11, 12 in the next slide. It explains the study note says that this is speaking of the Jews when the whole nation without exception shall come to Christ. Now I want, you may not realize how astonishing that quotation is, but if you know anything about church history and the history of the Reformation and the Reformation coming out of the medieval world and what the first and second generation reformers had taught, namely that God doesn't have a future for Israel, neither Luther nor Calvin believed that, and yet somehow, and we don't have time in this series to go into how this may have happened, but it's a separate issue from what we have time to study here. But providentially, God oversaw these notes made it into the 1599 Geneva Study Bible Edition. Now, I'm not saying that everybody in Geneva believed this uniformly. The notes are not consistent throughout the whole Bible. 
I'm not saying that every pilgrim or every Puritan certainly believed and fully understood God's future for Israel the way we did. I'm just telling you about something that's absolutely astounding, that these notes made it in the Geneva Bible and began to have an impact and would have that impact over decades in the early days of the founding of America. And I believe it's part of the uh, what's being baked into the cake, if you will, of the whole ethos of America in its founding that leads to the blessing uh, uh, or the love of Israel. Let me give you a quote here, insert a quote from McQuaid's book on page 77. He says, an Israeli historian has gone on record as saying, conversely, the role played by the Old Testament in Calvinism led the Puritan sects to identify themselves with the Jews of the Bible and reflected favorably on their attitudes toward contemporary Jewry, end quote. He says these same Puritan sects later carried their views to America, where their beliefs became the foundation on which the traditional American treatment of the Jewish people was established. And largely, uh, that was established, I believe, one major factor was the Geneva Bible. Let's go ahead and just quickly go through these next verses. Verse 15 talks about their being cast away and uh, their later acceptance. What does the study note say? It shall come to pass that when the Jews come to the gospel, the world shall, as it were, come quicken again and rise up from death to life. We'll go ahead here to the next slide. Uh, the major verse in this whole chapter, chapter 11, the olive tree metaphor, the tree of salvation blessing rooted in the Abrahamic covenant, talks about a blindness for Israel that's partial and temporary. Partial and temporary. Blindness in part until, only until. What does the Geneva Bible's notes say? From 1599 on, the blindness of the Jews is neither so universal, that's a way of saying it's what? Partial that the Lord hath no elect in that nation, neither shall it be continual. That's the way of saying it's what? Temporary. Check, by the way, your Ryrie Study Bible note, and you'll see the very words that the blindness of the Jewish people, it's partial and temporary. For there shall be also a time wherein they also, in the next slide, as the prophets have forewarned. Now, this is uh, interesting. We could go off on a, on a long tangent on this. Now we're talking about digging into the prophets, you see. This is the progress of dogma in the history of the church. As people begin to read their Bibles in the, in the light of the, that the Reformation is brought into the world, now we're even going to read the prophets. And we're going to understand the prophets literally, not just the epistles. As the prophets have forewarned, shall effectually embrace that which they do now so stubbornly for the most part reject and refuse. They're currently in their dispersion. They're currently in unbelief, but it's only partial and temporary. And then there's one more verse that uh, the Geneva Bible touches on here, verse 28, how that the Jewish people are currently enemies for the sake of the gospel. But the study note in the 1599 Geneva Bible tells us, in the next slide, again, that he may join the Jews and Gentiles together, as it were, in one body, and especially may teach what duty the Gentiles owe to the Jews. Next slide. He beateth this into their heads. I love, I love that saying. He beateth this, Paul's beating this into the Romans' heads. What? That the nation of the Jews is not utterly cast off without hope of recovery. In other words, God still has a future for Israel. And then the note ends with these words. In that God respecteth not what they deserve. But how many of us would want to start going on what we deserve? No hands raised, right? But rather, we can understand that we can be confident of this very thing that he has begun a good work in us if he's going to fulfill his promises to Abraham and to Israel. He'll certainly complete his work in us until the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to give them what he promised to Abraham. See, it goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. 
I hope you I hope you have a just a, a glimmer of how again how absolutely earth shaking this is that this made it into the Geneva Bible in 1599, 82 years after Luther posted the 95 theses, 35 years after Calvin died, when Calvin had had been the the overseer of Geneva and had absolutely no concept of God having a future for Israel. So we have to go on from here, and then we're going to think about then, uh, as we move ahead. Uh, oh, by the way, here's a blog that I wrote about uh, the Geneva Bible for the Friends of Israel. You can check on that if you would like for more information. It's called The Source of America's Love for Israel. We're going to go ahead then into... Um, before we do, here's a quote from William Watson. Uh, now with the Lord died unexpectedly a few years ago, but it just underscores what we've been talking about. New England Puritans understood Israel as the focal point of the future millennial reign. I've been talking about this tonight, how the Puritans were largely pre-millennial. And again, you'll not hear that from many people talking about the Puritans. So, Chris, is our next slide taking us? Here we go, back to the presidents. And we're going to probably finish tonight with one president. As Chris brings him up on the screen, he's the first president. And we all know and love George Washington. And President George Washington, uh, we have a few facts about him coming up here. It was on August 17th and 18th, 1790, that Washington went to Newport, Rhode Island. He visited what is believed to be the oldest Jewish synagogue in our country, was called at that time Yeshua Israel. And he wrote a letter back to the people there after his visit. He, I need to learn from George Washington. He was very punctual and professional. He wrote a letter back a mere four days later. And that letter, it's called. Uh, it's been called the touchstone of American Jewish life. And we'll have that, that slide up on the screen here for a while. The Toro Synagogue, as it's called today, named after a family that was part of it back in uh, these times and afterward. Um, the Toro Synagogue, and you can go to their website and see all kinds of amazing history. And I'm going to read from some of that. Now, I found one thing this week as I was checking all these things. They appear to have changed the website so that the things that I'm going to read from you, read for you here, are not necessarily available word for word currently on their website. And I kind of wish they hadn't done that. It seems like they've made it a little more summarized or streamlined, but there's still lots of information there. And you can also visit in person and see this historic site. I have not yet done that. I hope maybe I can one day. But the letter that Washington wrote back, as we begin to think, we're going to think about four more presidents now in the rest of our study. That'll be tonight. And then if you join us again next week, we're going to pick up and we're going to think about three more. Again, I'm, I'm sure at least one of those, you will not guess who it's going to be. So I'll just uh, tease you with that to come back next week. But the letter that Washington wrote, it's been called, and this is from the George Washington Institute for Religious Freedom that I'm reading this quote, and it says, quote, more than one historian has described the letter as the single most important document in American Jewish history. It says its words actually have been cited by Supreme Court justices in at least three religious liberty cases, end quote. Now I'm going to read for you the background of that letter and I'll summarize some of this, but I'll, be, I'll uh, begin here quoting, again, this was at one time up on torosynagogue.org, quote, the origin of Washington's letter to the Hebrew congregations of Newport, Rhode Island is small in size, but its impact on American life is immense. In 340 well-chosen words, the letter reassures those who had fled religious tyranny that life in their new nation would be different. And there's lots of background to this visit. Uh, it says, when, quote, when he wrote that particular letter in August of 1790, the New 
president must have been aware of the effect it would have on the fledgling nation. He could not have known the extent of its influence today. The history behind Washington's letter not only gives us an understanding of the values of the early colonists and our founding fathers, but also insight into two fundamental tenets of American uh, democracy. The separation of church and state, and I think they mean that in a good sense, like we would use the term, and the right of individuals to believe in and practice their religion. Quoting again, on the morning of August 17, 1790, George Washington arrived in Newport, Rhode Island. He was accompanied by Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, Governor George Clinton of New York, U.S. Supreme Court Justice John Blair of Virginia, and U.S. Congressman William Loughton Smith of South Carolina. The president had visited the New England states the previous fall, quote, to acquire knowledge of the face of the country, the growth and agriculture thereof, and the temper and disposition of the inhabitants towards the new government, end quote. Now, continuing the larger quote, he deliberately bypassed Rhode Island, which had refused to call a state convention to ratify the federal constitution at that time. He decided to make a public trip to the state only after May 1790 when Rhode Island ratified the Constitution. Such a special visit would not only focus the goodwill that Rhode Islanders felt toward him as the hero of the revolution, it would lend his personal prestige to the state's leaders. Now I'm going to summarize what's happening next. Is This is also a political visit because Washington and these other leaders are attempting to uh, promote what we know as the Bill of Rights. The first 10 amendments to the uh, Congregation Constitution, which at that point were 12 in number, and uh, they were pared down to 10. And uh, it says here, again, quoting, um, Virginia, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Georgia were still debating the amendments. Rhode Island had passed them as well, I believe. So Washington is thanking Rhode Island, but he's making this political trip promoting the ongoing uh, debate to ratify the Bill of Rights. Now, here's where it gets really pertinent to our subject. It says, quote, Washington and his group were greeted by Newport's leading citizens and representatives from the many religious denominations present in the city, including the Jews. And so among them was Moses Sykes not sure how his name is, is best pronounced, but that's my, my best shot at it. One of the officials of Yeshua Israel, the first Jewish congregation in Newport. Now, he had written a letter to Washington. Uh, he had made an address here. He, he read his address with Washington present. And he had used some specific language. He talked about a government which to bigotry gives no sanction, to persecution no assistance. Now here's where four days later, Washington writes his letter back to Newport. Uh, keep in mind at this point, according to again to torosynagogue.org, quote, even in religiously liberal Rhode Island, Jews were not allowed to vote, although their status as merchants and economic contributors Protect, protected them from overt discrimination, end quote. Now I'm going to read Washington's letter. And while I do that, I'll let Chris turn to the next slide, which might be our last one for this, this evening. But, and you can see these important words that Sykes had given in his address. He had used these words in his address. Washington picked up on it and copies the same language and puts it in his letter back to Newport, written four days after the visit. Here's, his, here's uh, selections from Washington's letter. He says, gentlemen, while I receive with much satisfaction your address replete with expressions of esteem, I rejoice in the opportunity of assuring you that I shall always retain grateful rem remembrance of the cordial welcome I experienced on my visit to Newport from all cl classes of citizens. The reflection on the days of difficulty and danger which are past is rendered the more sweet from a consciousness that they are succeeded by days of uncommon prosperity and security. 
And he goes on and talks about some important things, but for sake of time, I'm going to skip down to this key paragraph. He says, it is now no more that toleration is spoken of, religious toleration, where we merely tolerate certain things. You know, in our day, we're sort of moving, we're sort of regressing and moving back to religious toleration, away from true religious freedom. Washington said, it is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it were the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. For happily, the government of the United States, and here's where he quotes the address from Sixus, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. And he closes the letter in the most amazing way, quoting from Micah 4.4 without giving the reference. I wonder how many of our candidates could even do that today. He says, may the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness upon our paths, and make us all in our several vocations useful here, and in his own due time and way, everlastingly happy. George Washington. That was our first president, and the word he had to the community at Newport, singling out these words that were offered by a dignitary in the community from the Jewish congregation, the synagogue there, using that as the basis to explain that as the Bill of Rights was being passed, that this would be a country that would affirm religious freedom for all, to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance. What a foundation we have in our country and in our first president. And yet we realize that he was building on a foundation more than 150 years old that had been set in place by the Pilgrim Fathers and the Puritans who came to this country reading the Geneva Bible, and some of them beginning to hold to ideas that we would call premillennialism, that God still has a future for Israel, that he will bless those who bless the people of Israel. He will curse the one who fails to bless the people of Israel. Next week, we'll pick up right there and we'll jump all the way ahead into the 20th century and think about three more presidents. Thank you for listening to our FOI Equip podcast. Again, I want to remind you to go to foiequip.org and sign up to be on our mailing list. We'd love to see you at one of our free live online FOI Equip classes. Also, be sure to listen to our other podcasts like the Jew and Gentile podcast hosted by yours truly and Steve Herzig. Also, the Gesher podcast, hosted by Ty Perry. You can find out more ways to get involved with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry by visiting foiequip.org. FOI Equip is an outreach of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. We are a worldwide evangelical ministry proclaiming biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while bringing physical and spiritual comfort to the Jewish people. Hey, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon.